Welcome to episode 184 of This Week in Linux, recorded live on February 5th, 2022. From the Destination Linux Network, I'm Michael Tunnell. If you're new to the show, this is the podcast that will keep you up to date with what's going on in the Linux world, and I'll give you my take as a 20-year-plus Linux user. On this week's episode, we have some app news to talk about, gaming news, and a bunch of distro releases to check out, including the return of Peppermint OS and the long-awaited release of Slackware 15.0. All this and much more coming up right now on your weekly source for Linux Good News. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean and by Bitwarden. Before we get started this week, I want to let you know that there's a special guest joining us on Destination Linux this week. Alish, the president of KDE EV, will be on the next episode of Destination Linux, so be sure to add it to your favorite podcast app, or you can watch the live show at dealinlive.com Sunday, February 6th at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern or 1800 UTC. Up first in the show this week, we have Slackware. So Slackware 15.0 has arrived. It's been in development for about six years, and the Slackware founder, Patrick Volkerding, says, the challenge this time around was to adopt as much of the good stuff out there as we could without changing the character of the operating system. Keep it familiar, but make it modern. With that in mind, Slackware 15.0 ships with XFCE 4.16 and KDE Plasma 5.23 desktop environments. Slackware also introduces new scripts to help you easily build the installer and to build kernel packages when you need it. Uh, one interesting change is in this release is that there is a new make underscore, underscore world.sh script that allows automatic rebuilding of the entire operating system from source, which is really interesting. And they've also done a lot of other things for modernization. Uh, they've adopted PAM for authentication. They switched from console kit 2 to eLogND, making it much easier to support so software that targets that other init system, as they put, you know, quote unquote. Uh, that refers to systemd for those who don't know what that means. Uh, eLogND is a standalone version of systemd's logindy. So that's how it incorporates it without using systemd. They also added support for Pipewire, and they added support for using Wayland in addition to X11. They've also added some a new uh, file locking option for implementation to uh, prevent parallel installs or upgrades from colliding and, that's, and that kind of stuff, and a lot, lot more. There's a huge list of stuff in this latest version of Slackware 15.0, and if you'd like to learn more about that, you'll find links in the show notes. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about TinyCore. TinyCore Linux 13.0 has been released with 32-bit and 64-bit versions for the x86. Uh, also, it has support with the Linux kernel 5.15.10 and various upgrades to these packages that are in the repo. So TinyCore Linux, for those who are not familiar, is a lightweight dist Linux distribution. And when I say lightweight, I mean insanely lightweight. There's there's a difference between lightweight and tiny core. So I think that calling it lightweight is not really accurate because it's kind of ridiculously light at this point. So it's a roughly the ISO is about 22 megabytes. That's right, megabytes, not like most of the time you'll see 2.4 gigs or that kind of thing. This is a 22 megabyte ISO and it runs around 30 megabytes for the RAM 
and the system as it as it's like sometimes it can fluctuate depending on what you install but by default it's around 30 or so and this comes with the FLTK or the Fastlight toolkit and the FLWM the Fastlight window manager and it's mostly interesting for older or very low end hardware as the core runs entirely in memory and boots very quickly so it's kind of like for those who are familiar with puppy linux it's similar to that and how it runs in ram but it's even lighter than puppy linux now there are some you know you know caveats for that it's not going to be able to have every single thing that you might want in a distribution but its purpose is to be as small as possible while still being functional so tinycore linux 13.0 has a lot of different changes they've updated glibc they may have updated gcc uh, busybox uh, lots of interesting things like for example they uh, introduced a file tool.sh which prevents gratuitous changes to the file tool list timestamps and a ton more if you'd like to learn more about tinycore linux 13.0 I have links in the show notes. Up next in the show, Trisco Linux 10.0 has been released. This is based on Ubuntu 20.04 LTS. And you may notice that's almost two years after the release of Ubuntu 20.04 LTS and just two months shy of the release of Ubuntu 22.04 LTS. With that said, Trisco is a very interesting distribution because it's one of the few actual forks of Ubuntu. Most of the time, when a distro is based on Ubuntu, it still uses the Ubuntu infrastructure in some way or another, making it simply a derivative rather than a fork. Triskel is the only fork that I can think of at the moment for the Ubuntu family. This means that users will only receive packages from Triskel's repos, not Ubuntu's directly. And of course, it all comes from Ubuntu initially, but then Triskel does its kind of thing. So what does it mean? What do I mean by their, their thing? Well, Triskel's goal is to provide a distribution that does not offer proprietary components, and because of this, it has been endorsed by the FSF. You can decide for yourself whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. What it means for Triskel 10.0 is that it's using the GNU Linux Libre 5.4 kernel by default, though you can get newer versions with the Linux Libre 5.8 or the 5.13 kernels. Now, they don't have an option just yet uh, for a 5.15 LTS Linux kernel, but maybe in the future they might have one at that some point. One of the biggest changes in Triskel 10.0 is the initial support for ARM devices, targeting the ARM HF, or hard float architecture, which is a 32-bit style architecture. Unfortunately, there's no support for a specific ARM hardware just yet, but the devs aim to offer support for 64-bit ARM and also uh, even PowerPC going forward. The desktop environment that you will find in this latest version of Triskel is Mate 1.24 for default. They also have a rebranded Firefox known as A Browser and a rebranded Thunderbird known as Ice Dove. So Triskel 10.0 also sub drops support for the 32-bit hardware, which makes sense because Ubuntu did this for the 20.04 release. Uh, so they're, they're following suit with that. So if you're interested in trying out a distribution that is focused on having no proprietary software or even support for proprietary components in any way, and you want to have a pure free software-only approach, then Triskel Linux 10.0 might be something to check out for you. So if you'd like to learn more about it, you'll find links in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Now is the perfect time to dive into the DigitalOcean with their new app platform service to help you build modern cloud native apps for way less money. 
The app platform can help you build, deploy, and scale apps and aesthetic websites faster and easier than ever using a simple, intuitive interface. You simply point the app platform to your GitHub or GitLab repository and let it do all of the heavy lifting for you. Whether you're using Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, static sites, Docker, and container images, all of this is supported on the app platform. And by running the app platform on their own infrastructure, DigitalOcean keeps your costs significantly lower than with other products. Plus, it's built on top of DigitalOcean's Kubernetes, providing a smoother migration path so you can take more control of your infrastructure setup. And as a listener of this This Week in Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. Actually, better than free. Because if you go to do.co slash DLN, you can get a $100 free credit when you sign up. So again, go to do.co slash DLN to get a $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's app platform. I want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. Up next in the show, Peppermint OS is back with a brand new release. There are a lot of changes in this, re- in this release with new features and everything. The biggest change to note is going to be that Peppermint OS is no longer based on Ubuntu. They have switched from being based on Ubuntu to now being based on Debian. And with this version, they're based on Debian 11 Bullseye using the Linux 5.10 LTS kernel series. There is another big change as well to mention, and that is that they have switched from using the LXDE desktop environment to the XFCE 4.16 desktop environment instead. Peppermint OS also has replaced the Ubiquity installer with the Calamari's installer for system installation. And in a rather unusual move for XFCE-based distribution, they have decided to use Nemo instead of Thunar as the default file manager. To be clear, that's not to say there's anything bad with Nemo or Thunar. This is just unusual because most of the time XFCE-based distributions use Thunar. But it's really interesting that they, they did choose Nemo, and Nemo is a really good file manager, so... You know, interesting choice. Another unusual change that happened with this latest release is that they're not providing a web browser by default. Instead, you choose what browser you want to during installation using the welcome tool. So, and also speaking of the welcome tool, the welcome to peppermint tool is something that I'm really glad to see because this is um, basically an application that allows you to quickly customize your installation of the peppermint OS uh, distro. You can choose your browser as mentioned and also install extra packages. Plus it comes with a quick access tutorial for the ICE web app system. This is fantastic because ICE is a very cool piece of peppermint OS. So making it easier for users to get familiar with it is a great idea. And I've been a proponent for um, welcome tools in general for a long time. And I'm always happy to see when a distro introduces one because personally, I think every distro should have one of these things. So if you run a distro and you don't have one, please consider adding it because a welcome tool is very important, at least in my opinion. If you'd like to learn more about Peppermint OS or try it yourself, links in the show notes. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about the Raspberry Pi OS because the Raspberry Pi Foundation has now officially released the 64-bit edition of Raspberry Pi OS, which was previously known as Raspbian for those who are familiar with that. So this has uh, improved software compatibility with many closed-source applications because of the uh, ARM64 support, because the 64-bit is much more commonly used in a lot of different applications, especially with the closed-source proprietary style. And also some open-source software was not really fully optimized for 32-bit ARM, so switching to 64-bit has a lot of benefits there. There's also some other benefits, such as some much more needed performance benefits and the ability for a process to make you 
use of the full eight gigabytes of RAM on the system if you have the Raspberry Pi for eight gigabytes of RAM, removing the three gigabyte limit that 32-bit operating systems have. So this is a much needed improvement for the Raspberry Pi ecosystem. For those who uh, have one, you probably already have a 64-bit system, but you're currently using the 32-bit operating system. So if you want to try it out, you'll, have, you'll find links in the show notes below. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about some System76 news. They announced first the release of the Okudu laptop powered by AMD and NVIDIA. The Okudu features a 15.6-inch 1080p matte display with 144Hz refresh rate, the third-gen AMD Ryzen 9 5900HX CPU with 8 cores and 16 threads, NVIDIA's GeForce RTX 3060 graphics card is included in this laptop, and it also has support up to 64GB of DDR4 RAM and up to 4TB of M.2 NVMe storage. It has a lot of different options for peripherals. So you have a one USB 3.2 Gen 1 Type A, which is USB A type, uh, one 3.2 Gen 2 Type A, and also uh, Type C for 3.2 Gen 2. Uh, this is, has also support for the DisplayPort 1.4, which is really important because DisplayPort is the best connector. Now they also have a Mini DisplayPort 1.4 as well, uh, in addition to the uh, the HDMI port that is available now. This is a completely side topic, kind of like a tangent or whatever. But DisplayPort, if you have support for it on your monitors and your computer, you want to use that one because it's going to be a better quality and just overall a better experience than an HDMI typically is, just depending on what version you have of which one. But still, the typically... DisplayPort is usually the best. Uh, also, it has a USB 2.0 Type-A if you need that. It has it comes with Wi-Fi 6, Bluetooth 5, a 2.5 gigabit Ethernet, and the price for this laptop, it is a beastly laptop, and the price is no slouch either. It's a $1,799 base for the base model that features the 8 gigabytes of RAM and 240 gigabytes of SSD storage. And of course, it will go up more when you add uh, customizations to the, uh, the layout of the laptop. So if you're interested in that, I have a links below. Also, System76 has a new version of the uh, scheduler that has been released, 1.0, for the System76 scheduler, which is a Rust-written daemon aiming to prove improve Linux desktop responsiveness. So as they described it on GitHub, it's a scheduling service which optimizes Linux's uh, CPU scheduler and automatically assigns process priorities for improved desktop responsiveness. These changes result in a noticeable improvement in the experience smoothness and performance of applications and games. The improved responsiveness of, of applications is most notable on older systems with budget hardware, whereas games will benefit from higher frame rates and reduced jitter. This is because background applications and services will be given a smaller portion of leftover CPU budget after the active process has had the most time on the CPU. If you'd like to learn more about the scheduler or check out the Kudu laptop, I'll have links in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com slash DLN. Bitwarden is an awesome password manager that lets you have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. How does it do it? Well, Bitwarden provides you with tools to store all of your passwords in a secured vault, auto-generate passwords for you, and even automatically fill in passwords on login forms so you don't have to do any of this stuff. 
Plus, you can access this data across many different types of devices, whether it's your web browser, mobile devices, a desktop application, or even on the command line. Bitwarden seals and encrypts your private data with end-to-end encryption before it ever leaves your devices as well, which is one of the most important pieces because you know you're the only one with access to your data. Go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. Did I mention you can get started for free? Well, you can, but also you might want to check out their premium accounts because it starts at less than a dollar per month. That's right. Less than a dollar per month gets you a bunch of extra benefits like one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time passwords, party customer service, and so much more, including Bitwarden Send. And they also have business accounts and family accounts. So if you like to help someone in your family get started with password managers, you can help create the account for them and help them teach them to manage it and be able to share passwords back and forth. It's awesome. Check out Bitwarden and make the smart move like many of the community have and get your account today by going to bitwarden.com DLN. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring This Week in Linux. Up next in the show is the latest release of LibreOffice, which is 7.3. This release sees a lot of improvements to make it easier for people to migrate from Microsoft Office to LibreOffice, as well as those who regularly swap documents between the two Office suites. LibreOffice has t- new features to handle uh, change tracking in tables and text within documents. Large files also get a perform- performance boost thanks to the uptick in rendering speeds, and a bunch of import and export filters have been added uh, and also improved to ensure that the dot, uh, .doc, .docx, and .pptx and other Office files appear as expected. There were a lot of specific changes for Writer, Calc, and Impress, as well as a major revamp for uh, LibreOffice macro scripting resources. So LibreOffice macro scripting resources has 23 new services available for use in basic and Python scripts. And for those who are not sure what that means, it basically it's like an automation tool inside of your Office suite, creating macros that you can script and have it do things automatically, which is just a fantastic feature to have pretty much in every piece of software and any kind of thing because at, at this point if, if you can automate it you should do that if you'd like to learn more about LibreOffice 7.3 i have links in the show notes up next in the show we have kde falcon 3.2 has been released for those unfamiliar with this app kde falcon is a free and open source web browser developed by the kde community it's formerly known as quapzilla if you've ever heard of that project that's what it was known before it joined the KDE project. Uh, Falcon was initially developed only for educational purposes, but has received a lot of development and improvements since that time. Uh, Falcon 3.2 arrives close to two years after 3.1, and with this release, there are many new features, such as screen capture support has been added, which is very important for screen sharing in various tools like Jitsi and Zoom and others like that. It also has built-in PDF viewer, which is fantastic. Uh, some browsers have decided to remove PDF viewers, which I don't get at all. Those are They're very helpful to have built in. Uh, so I'm really happy to see that KDE Falcon has introduced that. Also has initial support for downloading themes and extensions, improved the speed dial system, added K-Wallet integration, improved the bookmarks and the cookie management solutions, as well as many, many more things in KDE Falcon. So if you're looking for a, a browser that is you know, more lightweight and focused on streamlining features rather than having everything out of the box, then check out KDE Falcon 3.2. I'll have links in the show notes. Up next in the show is GStreamer. GStreamer 1.20 has been released. This is the latest stable series of this powerful, widely used, open source, cross-platform, multimedia framework. 
So GStreamer 1.20 introduces major new features such as WebM alpha decoding support, video decoder, decoder subframe support, multi-threaded video conversion, and mixing in the compositor, uh, MP2, MPEG-2, and VP9 Linux stateless support, as well as smart encoding, aka pass-through support, for VP8, VP9, and H.265. There's also a new VA API plugin implementation for more decoders and new uh, post-proc elements. On top of that, GStreamer 1.20 allows you to tweak encoding profiles with additional application-specified spe element properties. And also, under the hood, there's support for building against FFmpeg 5.0, which we released. Uh, we talked about that that release of MPEG 5.0 in a previous episode, which I'll have linked below if you'd like to learn more about that. And also, there's been many WebRTC improvements in this latest version of GStreamer. And for me, the most exciting thing to see is the WebM Alpha decoding support added. So for those who don't know, alpha refers to the opacity of elements. Uh, PNGs are most commonly known for their ability to do transparent background images. But with WebM Alpha, this is essentially support for transparent background video. Now, this is there's a lot of potential that could this, off, this could offer. It's already possible to do this with the MOV format. But it's very cool to see WebM support added to GStreamer for this because it will open up a lot of options for various applications like video editors and other things. So if you'd like to learn more about GStreamer 1.20, link in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Visuex. Visuex is actually my company. because So it's brought to you by myself. So Visuex is a brand strategy design consultancy. This is a fancy way of saying that Visuex helps brands and businesses achieve their goals and accelerate growth and convert leads into customers by creating the nice designed experiences for their users and also doing digital marketing for you know getting more traffic and that sort of thing. So Visuex helps businesses gain a competitive advantage and build lasting relationships with their communities. Uh, businesses shouldn't settle for good enough when they can contact Visuex and get visual excellence. As a listener of This Week in Linux and a member of the DNA community, you can get started for free and get a free consultation. Plus, let Visuex know, well, me know, us know, whatever, uh, that you heard about Visuex from Twill to receive a 10% discount on your first project. So go to Visuex.com slash DLN to get started. And we want to thank Visuex, myself, for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. Up next in the show, we got some Steam Deck stuff to talk about, such as Steam Deck Verified and an update on Anti-Cheat. So we've talked about the Steam Deck on multiple episodes of this show now, and I will likely continue to feature it for a while since I'm so excited to get one of these things. But this week, we're going to talk about the uh, Steam Deck Verified program and also, like I said, an Anti-Cheat update. But first, let's talk about the Verified program. So Steam Deck Verified is a program where Valve is testing games to make sure that they work well on the Steam Deck. If something is Steam Deck verified, that, mean the, that means the game works smoothly on the Steam Deck, but there's also the playable classification. So if something is classified as Steam Deck playable, that means the game works, but it might not be completely optimal in some way or another. SteamDB currently lists 140 games as being Steam Deck verified, including Rocket League, and another 113 games as being Steam Deck playable. Now, this is really good because they, they, when they first announced the Steam Deck Verified, this implies that there's going to be a benefit of not only seeing what works on the Steam Deck, but also, in a way, what works on Proton. So that is very cool. And also, with an update for Anti-Cheat, Valve has announced that they have been working with Epic Games to make it actually easy for developers to support easy Anti-Cheat on Linux. 
The process to support EAC on Linux was not simple before, but now it's just a simple toggle button in, your de in the developer console, just like it is for BattleEye. So this is fantastic news because it means more and more games can be supported on the Steam Deck, which means more and more games can have support on Linux in general. If you'd like to learn more about the Steam Deck Verified Program or the e easy anti-cheat information about the latest update for that, I'll have links in the show notes. Speaking of Valve and Proton, we're also going to talk about some stuff that ProtonDB has announced. So in regards to the Steam Deck Verified Program to label games as certified for the Steam Deck, this also effectively acts as a verification for Proton support like I mentioned before, but ProtonDB is taking this a step farther and announced this week that they will be making changes to how they display statistics related to support of games on Proton. They used to have a more generalized way of doing it, having a games work label, which was helpful, but it was also kind of crude, as they put it. Uh, Valve's important investment in the, the Steam Deck verified program combined with the community rep uh, reports provided that the, you know, the most relevant answer to what works and if it doesn't work, how to fix it. Because of this, ProtonDB is retiring the Games Work statistic, and in its place is a more specific and nuanced approach of using the Steam Deck Verified program, plus how many games have gotten the thumbs up from contributors organized uh, by whether they do it by a thumbs up for at least uh, one to two or three recommendations. And I remember when this website started, this was actually just a spreadsheet in the beginning, and it is so impressive how far it has grown since then. Uh, for those unaware, this project is a great resource for finding out what kind of playability a game has on Linux, not just with Proton. It also has mentions when the, when the game is native-based as well, but it also has details of like how well it works through Proton, and if there's any stuff that you would need to do to make sure it works through the different reviews for the different classifications. So if they have a Platinum version, that means it's pretty much good to go. You can just install it. If it's gold, there might be a little bit of things that you need to do, and so on and so on. So if you would like to like check out ProtonDB, I'll have links in the show notes below. Up next in the show is Aurin, or A-U-R-N. Uh, it's an A-U-R install via a browser. So this is really interesting. So it's basically a quick installer for the AUR for Arch Linux, and it installs packages directly from the website with just a click. So this is interesting because it's very non-conventional for both Arch and also how it works with the, you know, the in general AUR, because the AUR typically you have to have an AUR helper. And if you're an Arch user, you have to build and do a package build to get the AUR helper and that sort of stuff. Uh, and if you are using a, a derivative of Arch Linux, then it's a little bit different, but you know. This is interesting because all, the way it works is that it has a background application that you install in your system. And then you have uh, extensions for Firefox and Chromium and uh, Chromium-based browsers as well. Uh, and it also has a desktop notification that shows you when the package has successfully installed, and then it will delete the files that it used to, like intermediary files that it uses to do the installations. Now, this is interesting because the install button is added to the view package build page instead of the main page, and the developer said the reason is because some people pointed out that it could be dangerous to be on the main page. So you can now read the package build before installing the package. Now, this is interesting because you might be wondering why are they saying it could be dangerous. And the reason is because people might use this for distributions that are not Arch and they're not going through the full process of checking out what the package build is doing and that sort of stuff. So putting it on the main kind of hides that away. So if someone wants to do it, they have to go to the view package build page to get it. So at least 
the package build details are there in their face before they click the button. So I guess that that is a much better way of doing it to avoid that kind of problem. This is an interesting approach to make it easier for Arch users, but it is directly built for Arch users. So it's meant for people who are familiar and experienced users using Arch. It's not meant for everyday users. So if you are a beginner to Linux, don't use Arch or Arch-based distributions because they're they're not really made for that. So if it, they're by the way, I'm a fan of Arch. I think Arch Linux is great, uh, but it's specifically great for what its purpose is, which is experienced users who want to have the latest rolling system as possible. And beginners are not typically comfortable with dealing with those sorts of things. And if you're interested in checking out, I'll have a link in the show notes below for Aurin, A-U-R-N, I don't know. Something like that. <laughs> Link in the show notes. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on this show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the show and the channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via Patreon, sponsors, and others. You can become a patron by going to tuxdigital.com contribute. And if you become a patron, you can join me during the live stream in the recording stadium to discuss stuff between topics and to just hang out every week after the show in the patron-only post show which is an awesome fun time. And if you want to join me, please please become a patron and do so because it is a fantastic thing that we do every week in the patron-only post show. You can also support the show ordering the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt or the This Week in Linux shirt that I'm wearing right now at dealinstore.com. Plus, here there, you can check out all the other great stuff on dealinstore, such as hats, mugs, hoodies, stickers, and many more. We actually also changed the store's vendor, so it's completely different and the quality has been upgraded and all that. Check it out, dealinstore.com. Plus, if you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the the latest episodes of Destination Linux and Hardware Addicts as I'm a co-host of both of those shows on the network. And just a reminder, this show is live every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern or 1800 UTC, so join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each and every week. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with the Destination Linux Network, and I'll see you next week for another episode of your weekly source for Linux. Good news.